76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman, and this summer we have a fabulous Pride season in store for you. On this episode, I talked to acclaimed author Stephen Rowley, who is most recently known for his hit 2021 book, The Gunkle, which was a Goodreads Choice Awards finalist for 2021 Novel of the Year. I talked to Stephen about his latest book, The Celebrants, which is a Today Show Read with Jenna book club pick. And just before recording this interview, it was announced as the winner of the 22nd Thurber Prize for American Humor. In addition to The Gunkle and The Celebrants, Stephen is the best-selling author of Lily and the Octopus, a Washington Post notable book of 2016, and the editor, named by NPR as one of the best books of 2019. His fiction has been published in 20 languages. All of his books are in development for feature film or television adaptation. And now, here's my conversation with Stephen Rowley. Congratulations on the Thurber Prize. Oh my God. It's a crazy embarrassment of riches of late. What a fun week, two weeks you've had. Uh, two, yeah, it's a, listen, I have no idea. It's been a whirlwind. <laughs> have you worked on a Celebrant's elevator pitch yet? Can you tell us what it's about? So the Celebrant's actually began with a combination of events, one of which was indeed COVID. A lot of discussion about how COVID is going to affect art, how writers are going to deal with it moving forward. And I will say this is very inspired by that experience, although the word COVID or mention of those few years do not appear in the book at all. So it's funny that you just said that because I was like, wait a minute, it isn't a pandemic book. It's not a it's not a pandemic book, but I think the inspiration comes as a response. We've all lost so much and I don't think we've dealt with that yet. And even if we haven't lost someone in particular, a person, we've lost time. We've lost togetherness. We've lost some good times and some friendships that fall apart when we aren't able to invest the time in them. The book is a reflection of that. But very early on in March of 2020, when we were sheltering at home, I was rewatching some old movies as we all were. And one of them was The Big Chill, which Mm -hmm. I had remembered as this sort of glossy film with a cast of future Oscar winners. Glenn Close, your day is coming. (laughs) And I remember this is about this middle-aged, it's about middle-aged ennui and what the back half of our lives are going to look like. And I'm looking at that film and every character is 35 years old. And that's what middle age used to be. And I thought instantly, oh, hell no, because I turned 50 while we were all at home, not able to celebrate anything. I said, first of all, we need to revisit the big Jill because I think it has a lot to say, but we're going to, we're going to up what we think of as middle age. So that was a jumping off. And similarly to the year before I had lost actually one of my best friends from college to breast cancer. That was a real, there is something about that. There is sort of a natural order to things. Sometimes we expect to lose our parents at some point. It's sad. And if you were to lose a child, that's very much out of the natural order. Something, you know, is very wrong. But with friends, particularly in midlife, I have friends who are 20 years older than me. I have friends who are 20 years younger than me. And no, there's no sort of deal with friends. And Mm -hmm. so it makes you face your own mortality in a way that I think I hadn't before. Losing a friend, watching the big chill, and then grieving so much over the past couple years has all led to this this place that's a long elevator pit we're talking about <laughs> well, that that's all the way to the, the top floor the ride was very long the elevator yeah. ride was very long but in terms of a log line i would sure. say i'm gonna i'll give you my pitch it's the story of college friends who lose a friend in college and are devastated that he didn't know or they don't know that he knew how loved he was and so they make a pact 
mm-hmm. to when they need it in a time of need have a living funeral so that they can each tell each other how much they're loved and then the book shares the perspective of each of those each of the per- each person unlocking it throughout their life that is perfect i didn't really that's think it through that's my final answer <laughs> i do i need to phone a friend and it, my friend is jason and he's got it okay we talked about where the idea of the book came from it felt very personal so the fact that you're saying it was this sort of reflection on your friend dying on your sort of covid response it almost felt like autofiction and uh, i'm curious if you even if you have a pact with your friends yourself i think there's something very interesting about bonding over shared tragedy yeah um yeah i think they um, say a common enemy is what brings people together and i think common tragedy is similar to I don't have a pact like this, but I do have a close group of college friends. We all mm-hmm. went to Emerson College in Boston in the 90s. God, so long ago now. But yeah, yes. I do have a, this group of close college friends that I've known almost since my first night at school. And mm-hmm. I just think it's such a, such a fascinating group in that we all knew each other when we were young. We all knew what our hopes and dreams would be. We've now seen what our lives have become. We know where those hopes and dreams haven't come true or changed or evolved or have come true and how that's changed us. And then it's also the people that you can be vulnerable around and also messy around. You can be your kind of worst self with friends that you've had for a long time. It's great to have friends that you can express even your messy parts to. Did you reconnect with others during this time? Oh, I haven't talked to so-and-so in a long time. I should reach out to them. Or are you just always connected to this group, to a specific There's a core group that I'm always connected to. And then the sort of interesting thing is at our age now, some have had kids and the kids are leaving for college. Mm -hmm. Some still have very young kids, had kids later in there. So we're all at sort of different stages. And some like me who who just, people ask me if I'm going to have kids. I'm like, I'm, I get tired. I don't do anything. I get tired. I can't possibly have kids. Well, Are you crazy? Also, if anyone read The Gunkle, I would be like, there's a bit of you in there. And I would say, I don't know that Stephen wants to have kids. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you read that. That came through on the pages, did it? No, it definitely did. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing about reconnecting with people and in writing the celebrants, that first time, the first person who triggers their pact and they all come back together in the book, they've fallen out of contact a little bit. And that's very much the way it was after college, pre-cell phones, pre-email, pre-social media. We weren't able to stay in touch in kind of the same way that's, oh, now you have tabs on. You can look at your phone and see what anyone is doing because we live our lives so publicly now. But then, and especially in those immediate post-college worlds where you're moving apartments maybe once a year and you're hopping all over or moving for jobs or whatnot, it was very easy it was very easy to fall apart. So one of the funny things to think about was in, in the first person triggering that pact is, oh, how do how does she track everyone down? So it's funny to, to go back and think, oh, it doesn't feel like life has changed that much, but it really has. Well, and it's interesting too, because it isn't even just how to get in touch with those people, but emotionally, how to get in touch with those people who you haven't connected with in decades. And then the moment you do you fall into old habits and remember it's just like it was being friends with this person is like riding a bike or similar to what you were saying about you can be messy with those people i feel like a big theme in the book is certainly chosen family can you talk a little bit about why chosen family is important to you oh for sure and it's important and it's such an element in so many queer stories and there's a broad spectrum of characters in this book it's not this isn't a group of entirely 
LGBT friends, but I am as a gay man, chosen family has always been incredibly important to me. And I think of specifically for people my age and older, where I came out 30 years ago, and that was a time still, again, we talk about not remembering how quickly things have changed for technology. Things have changed quickly for queer people. Things have changed very quickly. 30 years ago, many people were still being rejected by their families or certainly had the fear that they were going to be. More people were dying of AIDS in the early 90s than even in the 80s. We forget how lonely and short and scary life could seem for someone coming out 30 years ago. And Chosen Family, when I found this group of college friends and I knew it was the first time, and my family's really lovely, but I learned that there, I learned to not fear rejection by having this friend group who so immediately embraced me for who I was, not who I was pretending to be. And that's something I've carried with me throughout my entire life. I do have a very wonderful relationship with my family, but that almost came later when I learned to trust them with sharing my authentic self, which I could hmm. do more easily with these friends. I am married now. We just celebrated our second anniversary, but marriage equality was not something I thought I would ever see in my lifetime. So even yeah. looking forward at that young age to Will I have a partner? Will I have a family? Children, those are all options that are on the table now for queer people that weren't, that were much harder or much rarer 30 years ago as well. So I didn't know that I might have my own family one day. And so the idea of surrounding myself with chosen family, mm -hmm. I think was essential to seeing what a future, a happy future could be. When New York passed the marriage equality law, mm -hmm. I remember going to dinner with friends late at a random Mexican restaurant in Hell's Kitchen. And on our way out, the busser just said, congratulations. Yeah. And it was like a weird, wow, for the busser at the Mexican restaurant to even acknowledge that this was a thing that was important was just a fascinating sort of touch point upon reflection. Yeah, but uh, congratulations is an interesting response to that too, because yes, it is a right. And yes, we should all have that right. But just because we were given that right, or certainly someone my age, just because I was given that, did not immediately think that I, that I needed to embrace, sure. right? I, there was a hard, in part because my parents divorced when I was a senior in high school. So mm. I was coming out around the time my parents were divorcing. The institution just in general seemed like a disaster to me oh, sure. at that age. And so I thought, oh, you don't want me? Guess what? I do not want <laughs> you, marriage. Because it seems like a heterosexual mess. Once we were given the right, then we each had to reconcile our own feelings about what the institution yeah. is. How can we redefine the institution to fit queer relationships? And how can we still be ourselves within the paradigm of something which had traditionally been a heterosexual model? I want to go back to the book, but while we're talking about being gay and just identity in general... I've only read The Gunkle and The Self Prince, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. upon my research, it looks like all of your books are very queer, are feature gay characters. So do you feel a responsibility as a gay author to tell those stories? I do feel a responsibility, I think, to tell those stories, but more so I have, a, I feel a responsibility to write authentically. And I think that's what readers respond to, right? There's a lot of conversation right now about authentic voices, about who has what right to tell what story. And sure. And I have complicated feelings about that, as do many writers, in that I don't want to write homogenous novels with only gay people, because that's not the world we live in. And the same thing, I don't want to populate a whole novel with only white people or with only men. You have, I have to write women. I have to 
include characters of different backgrounds and orientations. This is the first book I've written where I've employed sensitivity readers, where I've talked to people to get their perspectives for the different backgrounds of my characters. Because I, I, I always feel like if I am going to write about something, I want to do it right. And so writing queer characters, I feel I can do that. But now my perspective as a white gay man, I wouldn't necessarily be able to write an authentic trans character without really doing my research or really talking to, to trans people as well. Even within a queer umbrella, I, there is still a responsibility to, to get it right. I think for me too, growing up, so many stories were either coded or they were very sad and didn't, didn't represent a bright future for me. And so I always like to write characters where yes, their lives are complicated and sometimes a little messy, but there is a, a bright future or a happy ending for mm -hmm. them. Because I think that's what was missing for me when I was young and so thirsty for stories didn't realize how much I was craving that until I read, it's silly, but Red, White, and Royal Blue. Sure. I was a mess reading that book. And it's, I don't want to undermine Casey's work, but it's a little frivolous. It's very silly. But I just didn't realize that the positive relationship between two men at falling in love and it having a happy ending was like something my soul desperately needed. Yeah, I think <laughs> I saw the movie version of of Love Love Simon based on Becky Albertelli's book. Sure, but with it, I saw an advanced screening with a group of all forty something gay men, and were sobbing. And this is was a wonderful movie. Greg Berlanti did a great job, but I'm not, it's not even a reaction to the film. The film could almost be separate from this. Exactly. It was a room full of forty year old men grieving the fact that we didn't get to have teenage crushes yeah. openly. We didn't yeah. get to have puppy love. It's the same with Heartstopper graphic yes. novels. And now everyone's fallen in love with the Netflix adaptation. But it again, so many people my age are so moved by that because mm -hmm. again, we almost for our own safety, we had to hide any teenage crushes that we had, whether yeah. that be so that we don't get kicked out of our house or we don't actually get physically harmed by expressing those, those crushes or sure. indulging in them. And it's interesting too, because you were talking about representation and stories that you're able to tell. All three of the examples we just gave are written by cis women. Yes. Which is just an interesting observation. Not, I'm not commenting in any way, but it is just an interesting thing that these three inherently gay male stories are written by cis women, which is fascinating. We're in a queer renaissance sure. YA books and representation as well. And so there are wonderful authors, Adam Silvera, Robbie Couch, I've read a couple books by Tobias Madden, yeah. I love out gay men who are writing in the YA space as well. Really wonderful. Oh, for sure. So, we just happened, the first few that popped into our mind, it is just yeah. an interesting thing. And you're right, have broken through in a very specific way. I think the idea of writing for a younger self in you is, in, is important. For a present day self too, I feel like something like the jungle <laughs> or the celebrants is very much for you. I'm like embarrassed to share this with you. It's probably not the best thing for me to be doing, but it's fine. I relate to Patrick mm. in that the portmanteau of the gay words makes my skin crawl. I hate gayberhood. And frankly, I hate the word gunkle. And so anytime I was immediately turned off from the title, anytime mm -hmm. he was referred to mm -hmm. as Gup, I was just like, ah, no, stop it. 
But the story I just loved so, so much. And so I was able to put aside my own emotional feeling. Patrick O'Hara is the lead character from my previous novel, The Gunkle. And in that book, he is living a sort of semi-reclusive life in Palm Springs when he's tasked with taking in his niece and nephew for the summer. Leads to a season of healing for all three of them. But even in the book, Patrick hates the word gunkle. And I hate the word gunkle. I rallied so hard to try to come up with another title for that book. And it just wasn't happening or so nothing funny. felt. At a certain point, it's all right, it is what it is. And I'm just going to lean into it. And par <laughs> partly because I think it's an ugly sounding word. I um, think so too. You're I just, weird. I'm so anti-gun too. I just, I don't mm. like that it starts with the word gun. I don't like this, the word gunk in it. I don't like, I just think it's like a harsh consonant groupings. It just don't even like auditorily. I don't like the sound of it. And then two, I also didn't want to name a novel after slang, which is all, like, it's having a moment, but you write a novel, it takes a long time to write a novel. And then you, it takes a long time to publish a novel. And so it's already a few years removed from when you wrote it by the time it comes out. And then on top of that, you want it to have a long shelf life. And I don't know what the half-life of some of this some of these the terminology, know, portmanteaus, yeah. the terminology. <laughs> yes, it's oh, it's a gunkle's day and there's a, there's all sorts of merchandise. You can buy a baby's onesie and it says, yeah, my gunkle loves me, you know, right. Right. it's highly a moment, but you don't want to be a moment, but yeah, it could just need, be a moment. And, you need a uh, movement, not a moment. That's what they say. Yeah. <laughs> so I really, I honestly tried to have it be anything, but, and now okay. here. It just won the Thurber prize for <laughs> American humor. So I, you're embracing and I worry, the word a little. I worry that, and I, I do think, it, so that's a, a serious literary prize. And yet the title to me in my head still sounds like it's a novelty book. You would buy at a register at Urban Outfitters or something. Yeah. I still wish it had a more literary title that recognizes or reflects the book's heft a little bit more, but it's uh, funny here that we you are. say that. I think that it, I'm, I, okay, I'm glad I brought it up because it makes me feel <laughs> a lot better because the book is so much more than that. I cried my face off. I close a book. And immediately forget its contents. No matter mm -hmm. what, I could love the book deeply. And the second I'm done, it's out of my brain. I, I've been reading a lot lately, especially. So that's another reason. But I know I really like a book when there are moments or a specific scene or something mm -hmm. that just like latches onto my heart. And the birthday scene in the gun yeah. call, yeah. I just... I will never forget it. It just was so beautiful. And so th this is the pitch for our listeners to also read The Gunkle or listen to The Gunkle. It just so happens that my, I read the book, I don't know, two and a half years ago at this point. Yeah. But our book club that I'm a part of, it's the book this month. <laughs> so I'm re-listening to it. I read it the first time. I'm listening to it now this yeah. time. And it's a fun listen you are reading. I am reading. Yeah. How it was my like first time reading an audiobook. I'll tell you, because I just finished recording the audiobook for The Celebrants, which I'm reading as well. So the wonderful actor, Michael Yuri had done my first two audiobooks. And I love uh -huh. Michael. He is so kind and talented. And, but there was something about the Gunkle you alluded to earlier. There is some crossover between me and Patrick, the character. So I thought <laughs> if I'm ever going to try it, this would be the book to do it. And the other interesting thing is like when you write a book, it's so exclusively yours for a long time. It lives in your head alone. And then suddenly you put it out there and, and anyone can interpret the text. And mm -hmm. that's as it should be. But People ask because they love Michael's versions of my first two audio, but they love it. Oh, you must love it. And I was like, to be honest, I haven't really listened to them because in my head, I said, if I go up here and Michael goes down or vice versa or whatever, like it's hard for me to listen to. But 
that is absolutely an actor's job to interpret the text. He should be doing that. And he's a lot more talented than I am. But I did want to give it a try. And I remember telling a friend about this because I recorded it in early 2021, just as we were going to air first vaccine shots or whatnot. Right. And, uh, and I remember my friend's reaction was, you put an actor out of work during a pandemic. <laughs> I thought, oh no. So Michael Uri, I'm so sorry. But so funny. he's doing okay, I think. So, I will say, no, he's doing fine. I will say there's something very interesting, yes, about hearing an actor's interpretation of a writer's work. But there is also something very special to really hearing it from the writer's mouth. Because you could interpret it however you want, and an actor can interpret it however they want. Yeah. But this is... This is how you want that phrase said, and that's how you're going to say it. Yeah, so there is a record. Know? If anyone's curious how the book sounds in my head. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. The hard part was I do live in Palm Springs, California, where it gets rather warm. And the first thing they have to do is turn off the air conditioning in the recording booth because the microphone is up. Noise. So I would be in there for like an hour and then I'd sweat pouring. <laughs> I would have to open the door and be like, <laughs> uh, uh. Okay, so I talked about the scene in the gunkle that has stayed with mm -hmm. me. The scene in the celebrants that has stayed with me, and I won't give away any spoilers, but it is Naomi's funeral. Uh-huh. I keep replaying some of those moments in my mind, and it's just funny and not heartbreaking is the wrong word, but you go to these silly places just because you can. And yeah, that's the one that really stuck with me in this book. I love that. I think it's my favorite scene I've ever written in a book, and I do think it's wildly funny. My first novel, Lily and the Octopus, is a dog book, and we all know what kind of happens in dog books, right? And uh -huh. so a lot of people are afraid to pick that up. You know, there are a lot of readers who are just like, absolutely not. Or I'll get, am I going to cry? People ask me that a lot, but am I going to cry? I don't know if people are going to cry or not cry. I'm not a big crier, but, but I can promise you that you will laugh hopefully, in all my books. And even a book like The Gunkle, which is ostensibly an outright comedy, it's also a book about grief and mm -hmm. grieving. And it's finding that sweet spot for me in my work where it's serious, heartfelt moments combined with those sort of sillier set pieces sometimes where laughter is truly what has saved me in my life. And I think it's true for so many, even in these darkest moments, I go back to uh, Steel Magnolias where laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. And that's, I think that's very true. And that's what I try to do in my work as well. So I do think the celebrant is it maybe not overall quite as funny as the Gunkle, but I do think that scene to which you're alluding to is perhaps <laughs> one of the funniest things I've written. It's so funny because it, yes, it's a wonderful scene. It's very funny. It feels, I don't want to say unrealistic, but there's something very larger than it's life heightened. about this yeah. scene. Yeah, it's yeah. very heightened. And yet, it's also really about the idea of loss of control and perhaps mm -hmm. the realization that we were never quite as in, in as much control, control as we, we thought we think. were. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, and so to your point about tears, for me, it's the transformation of characters, right? So like when Patrick in the Gunkle starts to transform a little bit and you see mm -hmm. the tide turn for him. And I think in The Celebrants, it's at the beginning of the book, as you mentioned, they this friend group hadn't seen each other in decades. And so they come together and as they relearn how to be friends as mm -hmm. adults, and when you watch that transformation happen, it's really very special. And I feel like that scene to me is, I think, one of the moments that really helps turn that for the group. Yeah. Yeah. Where did these characters come from? 
Were they nuggets of people in your lives? Yeah, there's no one-to-one correlation with any of my friends, but I think there are, I said before, God help you if you're friends with a writer, because we are sponges. And I'm married to another writer too, so uh-huh. we come to your dinner party. This is the conversation in our car on the drive home. I'm using that. I claim that that's mine. <laughs> they're so real to me, and yet they're not one-to-one correlations with anyone in my actual life, but they're amalgamation of both. People, you know, every character I write is a certain percentage of me as well in, in each of them. And so I love these characters and particularly people want to know when the Gunkle, am I Patrick? And no, there's no questioning that my pop cultural references, my politics, my empathy from my lived experience as Mm -hmm. an out gay man to all that is in that character. He's sadder than I am. He's been through some stuff. And then I get criticism sometimes of particularly at the beginning, Patrick's a very selfish person. And so I always wanted to like, wait a minute, are you accusing me of being selfish? And the same with this, as you mentioned, like these people, they're a little short with each other at first and they have to relearn how to be friends as adults. And I know they're not their best selves, maybe at the beginning of the book. And sometimes I get some pushback from that. And I always want to say, look, perfect people who behave perfectly all the time make for very boring novels. Um, Of course, that's also not... It's also not true to life. Yeah. No. And I think that's what was moving about the celebrants is, I think I said, it felt so personal. It felt autofiction simply because I just, I felt like I knew these people. I felt like you knew these people. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what is uh, autofiction in a way is the opening scene where they all come back together. Because I did have a moment when we came together to celebrate the, our friend who, who passed away and we were in this restaurant and suddenly like someone had pulled out a pair of reading glasses to look at the menu and someone else had to uh, use their flashlight on their phone to be like, why is it so dark in here? And I just had this moment of looking at us and you don't necessarily see that change in yourself, but you can see that reflected back at you. So I'm looking at my Mm -hmm. friends and I was like, oh, I still think of us as if not college age, like in our twenties, but here we are at the time we were pushing 50. And I was like, oh, what happened to these people? They're getting older. And then I'm like, oh, no, no, wait, I am too. It's just that I don't see myself in the same way. And I had this like overwhelming, like rush of love for these people. And Mm -hmm. almost like this feeling of, I love us more now in this version for everything we have survived, for for all the ways in which we have stuck together, for all the ways in which we have embraced aging. And even in the ways that we have fought against aging we are messy complicated fully realized people and yeah. if it was possible to love them more than i ever had before it was at that dinner at that night and that's the jumping off point for this book a little bit you're seeing them as older people before we flash back to seeing them younger even your love for your friends comes through in the nuggets that you've probably planted yeah i hope so i hope yeah. so and also I know that you and your husband have been very public about his cancer diagnosis that yes. happened. Yeah. I imagine as a person who was familiar with that too, reading that, there was something that felt personal. No, I'm absolutely fine to talk about that. Yeah. So my husband's writer, Byron Lane, has a new novel out the same yep, day. The same the day. I know I want to ask about uh, that too. All right, so we'll get to that in a second. But yeah. he's done work with the Testicular Cancer Society and he talks yeah. very openly about that. And yeah, that was difficult only in the timing of his diagnosis. He had testicular cancer now, it was like seven or eight years ago, and then a recurrence three years ago, just as 
the world was locking down because of COVID yeah. and is reflected in, in the journey of the Jordans, two characters. There's a gay couple. They're both named Jordan in the book. They're the Jordans. But I will say, and this is the difference between a lot of men's cancers and a lot of women's. Women's cancers can be much more deadly. There was never a moment where we thought Byron's life was in danger from the cancer itself. So I got to write and explore some of that feeling. So almost with the safety net of knowing I'm not going to lose my husband from this. Absolutely. Particularly. You were just able to take feelings from the Yeah. yeah. W- whereas breast cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer, like some of these are very, you know, yeah. much more life-threatening, which isn't to say that men's cancers are a walk in the park or aren't sometimes dangerous, but it is just one more thing where it's, where I think it's harder sure. to be a woman. You also knew at the time of writing that like, things were ultimately going to be. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was already in full remission. So that's the sad thing. Happy thing. You have a book coming out the same day. They're both queer-ish books. Yeah. How does that feel? What is that life like? What does a day in the life look like of two writers? It is, everyone thinks we planned this (laughs) and we absolutely did not. We wrote the books at different times. We have different agents. We have different publishers. Mm -hmm. It's just an absolute coincidence, perhaps other than I think for a lot of queer theme books are published around June. Oh, right, right, sure. Maybe that worked to to make that happen. But we're leaning into it and enjoying it and having a little fun with it. For years, Byron was the actress and writer Carrie Fisher's personal assistant, and he wrote a wonderful book called "A Star Is Bored," inspired by his friendship with with Carrie. And that book came out in the summer of 2020 as he was going through cancer treatment and as. The pandemic was the world was shut. Right. The, the world was still shut down. We forget mm-hmm. the bookstores were closed at that right. time, except for curbside pickup. So all that there were a lot of books, a lot of debut books that came out in 2020 that kind of didn't quite find their audience in the way they should have, and his was one of them. So at first, I I was upset on his behalf because I wanted him to have the full experience of you know, tour and the uh, yeah, exactly, and not having to share the limelight with me. Yeah, it is what it is, and and we're choosing to have fun with it, doing Leading a bunch of events it. together. And yeah, I so. know, I saw that. Can you talk about what's next for you? Is it too soon now that so you mentioned the celebrants takes or the books take a long time? So you wrote it probably. You wrote it at the beginning of the pandemic. You said. No, I actually, yeah, on. not that early on, but yeah, I started after The Gunkle was published. I didn't start the okay. Gunkle until after The Gunkle so in 2021. Yeah. Wow. I am working on another book right now. We're remaining tight-lipped on that, but I think That's it'll okay. be out next year. So I'm excited about that. I'm talking to you in the start of a second week of a writer's strike, but there are some film adaptations of mine working their way through different stages of the development process and we'll see what happens with the strike and if that slows things down but yeah well, i would love to see uh, an adaptation of particularly the gunkle i think fingers crossed coming soon to a theater near you anyone paying attention who's googled sees that it's been announced but we yes. all know that once things are announced 10 years later is when you find 10 years later it might come it might come around <laughs> The term will circle back around again. We'll have another moment for the term, the gunkle. Yeah. (laughs) Brace brace yourselves from someone with a complicated relationship with the word that will brace ourselves. Yes. Were you surprised by its success? Oh, absolutely. Always surprised by its success. But there's something about the gunkle in particular, which I'm just shocked because it is so beloved in a way that I could never have orchestrated or imagined. And one thing a writer has absolutely no control over is the state of the world in which their book is released. It came out in May, 2021, just as a moment where 
a lot of us had finally been vaccinated. We were peeking our heads out after yeah. a long time, a long year, and uh, the world was opening up and we were joining the world again. And to the extent that the Gonkul is about a character who's been self-isolating for a long time, learning to find his way back into society, it I think it struck a chord in that moment and it had the right mix of humor and but also seriousness, because I don't, I think felt like we'd all felt like we'd been through something and we weren't ready to be completely frivolous, but we also just desperately needed to laugh as well. Yeah. It was just the intersection of book and moment, I think that. Yeah. Um, I love that. Life. It's joyful, but there's depth to it. Yeah. It makes me think about Mamma Mia, which the mm -hmm. musical opened on Broadway just after September 11th. And yeah. Yeah. That is quite is more frivolous than the Gunkle. I don't want to imply that the Gunkle is as frivolous as Mama Mia. <laughs> but yeah, the, you were serendipitously met a moment where yeah. the Gunkle was needed. And I think well, there's anything I love that's fine. It's perfectly fine with me. If there's anything I love more than Mama Mia, it's Mama Mia 2. We could do a whole other hour <laughs> on Mama Mia. I love so I've any, not, any Christine Baranski project or musical i'll talk to you uh, that's but so yeah it, you're no it's very much true there was a renaissance of christmas movies after 9-11 too love actually family stone elf those things that are, are like modern classics there are a lot of families watch year after year after, were a reaction to 9-11 as well they came out in the in the years following that I yeah i think after that. a dark period there is a need for celebration that's the celebrants <laughs> coming the to bookstores Let's yeah. celebrate. I know. It's such a beautiful book, Stephen. Congratulations. I don't want to say I can't believe how much I loved it because that sounds like, I don't know, it sounds like a negative comment on your work. I I loved The Gunkle. I thought it was beautiful. But this, I just was so taken by in a way that surprised me is so special and so beautiful and I'm so excited for you. I'm people. excited too. It's, it's daunting to follow up a book as beloved and successful as The Gunkle. It's really, it can be a mess with your mind a little bit, but I hope people accept this on its own. I'm really proud of it and I can't wait to see it stand on its own two legs. I know, me too. Stephen, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Mazel tov on the book and to Byron as well on his. And thank you for all the things that you write. And I look forward to sharing all of this with our folks. Congrats. Yay. Thank you for a lovely conversation. Cheers. For listening, The Celebrants is on sale now wherever books are sold. Make sure to check out all of our other episodes of 76 West as well. And if you like what you're hearing, rate us, review us, share us with your friends. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our audio engineer is Matt Temkin. Make sure to like or subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode drops. Until next time. <laughs>